Good morning and welcome to Visionaries. I'm John LaBelle, your host, and you'll find us here on the Progressive Radio Network at prn.fm. Every Monday at 10 a.m., that's 10 Eastern U.S. time, since we're global, could be any time you're part of the world, and catch our back shows, including this one later today, at visionaries.podbean.com. That's P-O-D-B-E-A-N. And my guest today is Nikolai Daniloff, a.k.a. Socrates. Nikolai, are you there? Yes, John. Nice to talk to you. Great. Uh, pronounce your name for us. Well, you can just call me Nick Daniloff or simply Nick. Nick. Great. And uh, <clears throat> there's an interesting character who's popped up recently, Jordan Peterson. And he's probably... <laughs> The most popular figure on YouTube at the moment. People make a living by taking his interviews, cutting them up, and posting them as their own videos. But he said something interesting, which he said, I, uh, Peterson said, I think that YouTube is going to win and uh, cable TV is going to lose. And you look at uh, the number of people watching CNN or Fox News or whatever. And then look at the people watching a Jordan Peterson video or a Rubin Report video, and there's a lot more people on uh, on YouTube. And Nick started something a while back. I guess you were interested in the singularity. So why don't you tell us about your background, what the singularity is, and how you got started as a podcaster? Well, basically... The story of my podcasting started with a failure, as it often happens to, to happen. <laughs> so I was a fresh graduate from a master's degree program at York University here at Toronto, and my specialty was political science, but my focus was on armed conflict. So I wrote my thesis on uh, artificial intelligence on, in times of war, and I was focusing on drone warfare in Iraq and Afghanistan. Mm. And back in the day in 2005 and six, that was a very new topic. There was hardly any research on it. There were only a couple of dozen drones uh, fielded only by the CIA at the time, by the way. Um, and so after I graduated, uh, I, at the peak of the recession at about 2007-8, I stopped counting after I sent out maybe 300 resumes. And uh, I had one interview. And apparently that interview <laughs> didn't go very well because they never called back. And this is but, after this whole investment in uh, decades of education. Right. And, and uh, so I had an undergraduate in political science, philosophy and economics with distinction, highest honors, blah, blah, blah. And then I had a uh, master's degree and dean's list and I don't know what else, scholarships, etc., didn't seem to help in the job market. Um, one of the applications, however, that I sent out was for a blog that at the time, uh, we're talking here 2007, 8, maybe 2008, uh, was the first blog in the world on the topics related to artificial intelligence and the technological singularity. And they had a, an open call for staff writers. And... Uh, uh, I thought, wow, I got to be perfect for these guys. You know, this is what I wrote my master's thesis on. They say I'm, I'm a pretty good writer, so they should be quite happy to have me. And it took maybe two weeks for me to realize that these guys are not calling either. Mm. <laughs> so, but, but something weird happened. Uh, about a week after it occurred to me that they're not calling, another thought popped into my head saying something crazy like, well... Why don't you give it a try on your own? Why don't you try and see maybe you don't need these guys to, to write for their blog. Maybe you can start your own blog. And, of course, at the time, that was a very scary thought because I had no technical knowledge whatsoever. I'm not an engineer. I'm not a software uh, programmer or anything, design, graphic designer so or anything like that. step one is, is just like, what microphone should I get? <laughs> 
I knew nothing, right? And at the time, it wasn't even about microphones. It was simply about the website. And so I started with uh, learning HTML. Uh, I found this website, which was giving free sort of lessons on HTML. And it took me like three months to put my homepage uh, in an HTML code. And in another three months, I maybe had 50 or 60 web pages. Uh, and then that would be six months in, I discovered WordPress. And I ah. thought, wow, this is so incredible. Uh, now, if you actually can type into a word processor, you don't need to do HTML anymore. WordPress can do all that for you. So I switched my entire platform and I launched singularityweblog.com. And then about six months later, I discovered podcasting. So that was about maybe 2009. So what did you do on singularityweblog.com uh, before you did podcasting? Well, it was just blogging, just terrible, little, oh, horrible, writing. short, not <laughs> not well done blogs. Just before we uh, figured out that people don't read anymore. <laughs> well, yeah, and, and to be honest, like for that, at that time, so the first six months I launched a website called singularitysymposium.com, and that was entirely a, a, an HTML website, and it's still up there for people to check it out, by the way. It's still as you know, sort of basic as it was back then. I haven't touched it in a number of years, but it got me going. So it's not about like, you know, you can't start at the top. You have to basically start at the bottom and work yourself up. And this is what I did. And so um, eventually I got to podcasting. I got to the moment where maybe six or seven months after I had started podcasting, a fan of, of the, well, no, maybe more like a year later, a fan of the podcast asked me, why don't you do video? And I told him, ah, you know what? Uh, I, I, it never even occurred to me. So <laughs> I started doing video. Uh, then he, he actually donated money for me to buy my first uh, web, uh, camcorder. And as they say, the rest is history from then on. <laughs> Great. So for our listeners who... <clears throat> might not be familiar with the term singularity. I guess we've spoken about it on the show previously, but describe what you mean by singularity, how you got interested in it, and how the term is evolving. Well, so basically I got interested in it while doing the research for my master's uh, thesis, uh, first, by reading a book by writ written by Ray Kurzweil called The Singularity is Near, which is a nonfiction book, and it's tremendous. Um, I suggest anyone should read it. Uh, and as luck would have it, right after that book, I read another book, which was basically the fiction version of it. Uh, it's called Accelerando, and it's a science fiction novel by Charlie Stross, uh, which kind of made it even more real than the nonfiction Mm -hmm. uh, version of it. And these two books taken together, one after another, basically blew my mind. Uh, and so that was my first exposure. And I thought, well, everything is going to change in our life, in our civilization after I wrote these books. I mean, after I read this, these books. Um, the term itself has a number of subtle uh, differentiating definitions. But perhaps the, the most common one is... Uh, the moment when artificial intelligence surpasses human intelligence. Mm -hmm. And the reason why it's a singularity is because our models of the future break down after that and we can't predict what will happen, ha what will happen afterwards because we stop being the smartest species on our planet. So it's sort of borrowing singularity in a black hole where the laws of physics break down and exactly. applying it to where <clears throat> our ability to understand and predict the future is going to break down. Exactly, exactly. So anything that we think we know right now, like, for example, our economic systems, our business structures, our social structures like the family, our political structures like governments, um, international organizations, uh, our laws, our religions, even our ethical codes, our bodies, biologically speaking, everything would be changed and challenged when we hit the singularity because all of those things will become a lot more flexible than they've ever been. Uh, and there would be uh, probably, it would be very hard to have one 
dominating form thereof. Interesting. So you have uh, brought to us in your <coughs> interviews uh, many significant figures, uh, both <coughs> very narrowly addressing the singularity and broadly looking at technology in the future. <coughs> Excuse me. Who are some of the most interesting people you've interviewed, and what are you learning? Well, to be honest, uh, <laughs> I get this question a lot, uh, and I've done about 230 of these interviews uh, with some of the luminaries, so I've been very lucky. I've had Ray Kurzweil, Werner Vinge, Michio Kaku, Bill Nye, the science guy, Max Tegmark was the last interview that I did, Noam Chomsky, the father of AI, Marvin Minsky, and many others. But asking me... Uh, <laughs> what's my favorite interview is like is like asking a parent who has you know two right. or three children. So that's not fair. So just tell us some interesting stuff you've learned. Yeah. Well, basically, the interesting stuff is that you know we have no idea what we're doing. <laughs> ah. <laughs> if that's interesting, there is no mission control for you know uh, spaceship Earth. And we're just about to hit the black hole. So in the next maybe couple of decades. So we live in interesting times and anything is possible, really, from the worst possible cases and dystopias and even complete extinction of the human race, I would say, to the, the probably best possible utopias. Uh, pick whatever color and shape you associate with. Uh, including, you know, overcoming death, uh, populating the universe, uh, spreading throughout the cosmos like Carl Sagan and now currently Elon Musk is dreaming of and so on and so on. Anything becomes possible. So let me describe something and get a reaction. Um, I, I've been teaching this stuff since <clears throat> 1969, course in technology wow. for architects. And at that time I used... Uh, 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 well, going up to 76, um, the book, The Next 200 Years, by the founder of the Hudson Institute. What's his name? Anyway, I would contrast that with Limits to Growth, and we, we'd read both and talk mm -hmm. about it. But uh, I also teach uh, architectural history, and I like to end my one of my lectures on Frank Lloyd Wright showing his first building on his own, uh, which has stables in the back. Mm -hmm. And then one of his last buildings was a project didn't get built for a Mile High Tower in 1956, and yep. it's designed to have atomic-powered elevators. So right. he lived through, you know, when he was born, they were just finishing the Transcontinental Railroad. When, after, yep. when he died, he had been flying on 707 jets. And so, we were going to the moon, yeah. Yeah. The, well, it, he died just like a year before Kennedy announced we were going to the moon. Okay. So, so uh, yeah, but, but then, we already had a man in space. Right, right, right. So yeah. here we are, and I'm teaching this stuff in the same room <laughs> for 50 years. And wow. the big difference is instead of using a Kodak carousel with a tray of slides, I can plug my laptop into a video projector, but it's yep. still shining on the same wall. I have to turn out the same fluorescent lights, pull down the same shades as I did 50 years ago. So yep. in some ways, you know, have, um, do, did, have I experienced more change in my life than Frank Lloyd Wright did? And will my students experience more change or not and i think in a lot of ways it's contradictory mm -hmm. well you know peter Thiel famously said they promised us flying cars and jetpacks and all we got was 140 characters yeah but now it's 280 <laughs> now it's 280 but it's still the same point right. is valid i think right even if it's 280 it's not like radically different right right the, the the point is that yes there has there have been disappointments and if you if you look at uh 2001 space odyssey by arthur c clark and uh, stanley kubrick the the classic uh, science fiction movie you know we were supposed to be outside of the solar system by now like seriously uh not with just voyager but 
you know, we should be on Mars and, and having space stations all over the solar uh, system, etc. In, et in 1969, I told my students, your students are going to be doing gravity-free experiments in orbit over winter break. So, yeah, I was predicting that, too. <laughs> But but on the other hand, there are students who are doing so. For example, there's just I was watching on the news last night a Canadian school that submitted this experiment that just got blasted off yesterday or the day before yesterday with SpaceX right. to do experiments. So it does happen, uh, and they're doing uh, zero gravity experiments. Um, uh, but so you see, there are two kinds of extrapolations. One kind that singularitarians and, and technophiles uh, don't tend to do very often and another kind that they do tend to do. So the one kind of extrapolation is the extrapolation of, you, you can call him Lord Kelvin that, uh, or even H.G. Wells, who uh, Lord Kelvin was the smartest, uh, one of the smartest people around the world. In 1896, he was the president of the British Royal Scientific Society and wrote this book saying that heavier than air aircraft is absolutely impossible to build. In 1901, uh, the great H.G. Wells wrote an article saying exactly that same thing. And a, a year or two later, two bicycle makers, uh, who never read their books probably, <laughs> the Orwell brothers, basically uh, invented flight, right? So, and, and from then, in 70 years, uh, you know, we went from Kitty Hawk to the, to the Apollo uh, landings on the moon, Yeah. right? So, so that's one extrapolation that people extrapolated. Look, from the time of Daedalus and Icarus, uh, humanity had this dream of flight, but we never accomplished it, and, and it was hubris to even dream it, so we should never dream it, and it's impossible. And yet that kind of extrapolation prediction turned out to be false. There's another kind of extrapolation, though, and that's the, the, the one that Arthur C. Clarke and a few others did after him, saying, look, we went from 1901 to the 1970s to the moon, it makes sense that from the 1970s to the 2040s we'll go way beyond the solar system, right? But then something happened. And, you know, we don't even have a Concorde anymore. We don't have supersonic uh, commercial flights anymore. Uh, we, it turns out uh, NASA even lost its ability to send people to the moon now. <laughs> they, 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 lost that send, they can't even send them to the International Space Station after right. let the Russians do it. <laughs> right, right. So, so and this, this, this goes to show you that we really don't know, and, and predicting the future is much harder than people make it out to you, and it's not a mere simple extrapolation, and you're bound to make a mistake whether you extrapolate negatively or positively. Um, so what I can say to you, yes, I agree with you. In some ways, we have been disappointed from what was promised to us. In other ways, we haven't. Um, and to me as a philosopher, to be honest, the question is not so much about the timing, but the really important question is always, so what? Well, maybe I'm not going to be here for the time when they defeat death and are able to create indefinite life extension for humans. That's cheap and available for everyone. Maybe I'm not going to be lucky enough for that. And surely I would like to be here, but if I'm not, that's not so important for humanity. I'm the only person who cares about that, right? What's really important is, so what? How does everything changes around us if we're able to defeat death, right? Right. And those are... Those are the important questions. Those are generally philosophical questions that are evergreen questions that have like a much longer longevity. And so the timelines are interesting, but they're rarely the most important thing for me. Good point. Did you read Arthur C. Clarke's Profiles of the Future? No, I'm, I'm, I'm unfortunately not. I highly recommend it. It was written, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, 60 years ago. And... What he does is he, he introduces a book with talking about exactly this, how it's impossible to predict the future, how everybody gets it wrong. And then he right. says, <clears throat> what I'm going to do in this book is not predict anything, but just show the range of possibilities. So mm -hmm. future personal transportation. On the one hand, we could have mini pachyderms, you know, because he was in Salon. So, right. uh well, that meal will breed small elephants. They're very intelligent. They know what time you get off work. They'll be there to pick you up, take you home. You're high up. You get a nice view. Mm -hmm. um, 
and or we might have hovercraft. And if we have hovercraft, what would that mean? And you would wouldn't want to, you know, turn corners. You'd cut a diagonally across your neighbor's lawn. So it would mean eventually private property would go away <laughs> because law tends to follow technology. And if you can't fence off your pop property because anybody can go anywhere in their personal hovercraft. Uh, and then the ultimate possibility was a transporter, which he talked about long before Star Trek. And he said <laughs> the problem there is that it wouldn't transport you, it would duplicate you, and would it be legal to have two of yourself? Right. <laughs> right. So yeah. he covers all the possibilities and then says, what What would they mean? You know, what, what, what would be the implications? Be? So despite right. the book being a half a century old, <clears throat> it's totally readable today. Absolutely. And those are the, the everlasting questions, the, the questions that don't really focus too much on the technical details, but the questions that focus on the implications, which is another reason why in my blog and my podcast, I almost never cover anything newsworthy. Um, I mean, I do have some small things every once in a while, but those are not things that last and I don't focus on them. I want to create evergreen content by asking evergreen uh, or long lasting questions, because you see, one of the things about technology is that uh, the question, the answers that we get in technology have no longevity. They have very limited shelf life. Um, and as technology changes, the answers that we come up with, the solutions also tend to change. And that's particularly true in the world of Google, because uh, when uh, answers are free, then questions become really priceless. And so I, I like to sort of shift our attention to the right questions, because you see, we keep asking the same questions over and over again in different epochs for thousands of years. And the only difference between one epoch and another epoch is that we give a different answer. Um, interesting that uh, as, excuse me, <clears throat> as uh, some of our listeners will know, I'm involved with a project called Time Ship, which is a next generation uh, cryonics mm -hmm. facility. And yes. uh, as you know, you you described these philosophical questions and asked what would it mean if we live maybe not immortally but indefinitely, maybe hundreds of years. And I find that so seldom discussed in uh, these cryonic circles. I mean, the most philosophical I see people get is life is good, more would be better. And that doesn't seem very profound to me. So have you encountered and, people thinking about this, and what have you found? I have to agree with you. My observations are very much the same, and this is something that really kind of irks me a little bit because, to me, it's, it's great to have more of life, but the, the, really, the, the real important question is what do we do with it, right? Because right. you can say, well, life is a good thing in itself, and just like when I interviewed the president of the U.S. Transhumanist Party, Gennady Stoliarov II, he said, death is wrong and life is right, period. And that's one way of addressing it. But to me, that's insufficient. That's, a, that's, a, that's an okay start, but it's insufficient. So the more important question is, okay, you have this life. What do you do with it now? And, and that's... Yeah. And, and to me as a philosopher, the answer to that question would ultimately justify uh, or not uh, the worthiness of your life. Uh, because, you know, if you are a horrible human being and you create death, suffering and destruction all over the world, wherever you go, then obviously being uh, living for thousands of years would be very, very bad thing and, and maybe even immoral. Right. But but if you're a very good thing and you create you diminish suffering and et cetera, et cetera, and, and you devote your life to doing good in the world, then. Uh, living a very long time would be obviously a very positive and, and, and ethically good thing. And so it is not life itself that matters to me personally as a philosopher again, but it is what we do with it. And that's a question that many transhumanists and cryonicists seem to ignore completely. And they simply uh, start with the axiom that life is good, but they don't ever stop to ask, but why is it good and what is it for in the first place? Uh 
Very interesting. I, um, <clears throat> I think something has happened in academia in its materialism that mm -hmm. has squeezed out that question. And are you familiar with the new term, the dark, the intellectual dark web? Uh, to be honest, I think I read something about it some time ago, but it's uh, it doesn't bring anything uh, like the definition doesn't pop into my mind right now. And I do get through a lot of information. And as being mere human, you know, I retain a, a mere fraction right. of everything that goes through me. <laughs> uh, it, it, the term was uh, popularized in a New York Times magazine, Sunday magazine article. So you should be able to find it, be able to Google it. But it refers to people like Ben Shapiro, Rubin, Sam Harris, Jordan Peterson, who are yeah. these, at the moment, immensely popular intellectual figures right. on the web and with very opposing views. Uh, for example, Sam Harris is a uh, spiritual atheist, and uh, Ben Shapiro is a observant Orthodox Jew, uh, right. and Jordan Peterson is won't say it, but he appears to be pretty Christian. And But what they agree on is the necessity of discussing these questions of what are we doing with our lives. And yeah. I'm a professor. I'm in a university. And I don't hear anybody talking about that. <laughs> well, this part here, I have to disagree a little bit. Uh, so, so first of all, let me just put my biases straightforward and, yeah. and say that I'm not a big fan neither of Sam Harris nor of Jordan Peterson myself, so I'm already biased in answering this question. But but more importantly, I think, uh, you know, I, I did an undergraduate degree in philosophy. Um, and especially, uh, and when I say philosophy, I mean simple philosophy, not like uh, Kant's uh, categorical imperative or something like that. But I mean like basic philosophy that we can apply in our daily lives, the, the ones that the Greeks and the Romans used to have from the time of Socrates, Seneca, Cicero, Lucretius, Marcus Aurelius, uh, Epicurus, etc. Uh, and the Stoic philosophy in particular uh, gives us a lot of answers to, or, or, or at least guidance and principles that we can apply to our daily lives that helps us address those issues. And this is what philosophy is all about, because the unexamined life is not worth living. Uh, and, and philosophers have been examining their personal lives and life in general since since the get-go. So I think there's nothing new about that uh, as long as you're, you know, staying in the realm of philosophy. Now, those particular people who have gained prominence on YouTube for simply being controversial or taking those kinds of, like, click-worthy, um, you know, positions are, in my opinion, rarely the best representation of our civilization or of intellectual thought, to be honest. Um, so um, I'm highly skeptical of that. And they're a reflection of our YouTube culture and, you know, PewDiePie and, and all those other super popular YouTubers. The, the name of the guy who went to, to shoot a Japanese suicider and took a picture with the corpse is now escaping me. But he is just another idiot who is like super popular on YouTube. But what does this say about our culture and what does it say about YouTube? Right. So I, I personally stay away from these guys. Okay. Oh, while we're at it, uh, what, uh, who, for our listeners, who do you recommend? Besides, oh, well, first, tell our listeners how, where they can find on the web, where they should go to find your back, current and back interviews. Well, so if you type uh, singularity.fm in your URL address, you would get to the homepage of my uh, podcast and you would see links where it's hosted on iTunes, YouTube. SoundCloud, Stitcher Radio, Android, Google Play, uh, RSS feed, and so on. Um, so that's easy to find. In terms of recommendations of other people, yeah. I would say start with the work of Yuval Noah Harari. Uh, his book, Sapiens, is uh, probably the best book I have read in the last decade. So I think that's a very good start. Cool. And some, some let's say some... Um people on the web to follow who uh, whether it's to follow them or to, like I'm a big fan of Ray Kurzweil and Stephen Wolfram so mm -hmm. I'll go on YouTube and put in Stephen Wolfram then go to filter 
to say the last month. So because you know I've seen. Well, if you go stuff. to my podcast, I've done uh, unique interviews with both Stephen Wolfram and Ray Kurzweil. Right, great. Uh, so people can start there. For example, uh, Stephen Wolfram was on his book Mathematica, and uh, Ray Kurzweil was on uh, how to create a mind. Uh, which are both relevant topics to anyone interested in AI and, and mind uploading and the technological singularity or the future of humanity in general. Um, it's, so, yeah. And it's interesting to see how uh, his his uh, description of um, hierarchical layers... Uh, mm-hmm. Markov as, models. Right, for the working of the mind. is sort of underlies the recent explosion in AI based on neural nets... And uh, so we we hear this term neural nets and then we say, well, I want to understand them. So (laughs) how to create a mind is a good place to start. And for Mm -hmm. people as lazy as I am, amazingly, that book is on audio as well as in print so that uh, you can even listen in the car. (laughs) Absolutely. Absolutely. Yes. And then... um, uh, I'm also a big fan of Wolfram's A New Kind of Science. And yep. he's mostly looking at uh, one-dimensional cellular automata. Oh, is it a, cellular a, automata. Automata. Thank you. Yeah. Yep. Uh, but they're indicative of a whole way of thinking. You know, He says, I mm-hmm. think Newton made a mistake when he tried to describe the world through differential equations. Nature may be using something more like software. <laughs> Absolutely. And there's many, many people who uh, agree with that or support that statement. And there's also many who disagree with it completely, by the way. Uh, but it's a, it's a very interesting opinion and it's worth uh, investigating. Yeah. So um, you recommended the book Sapiens. Who are some other figures... Uh, that, um, you know, one of the things I sometimes do on this show is just go through the audiobooks on my smartphone and describe them because I'm always looking for book recommendations or people mm-hmm. recommendations. So, who are some of the people you follow or recommend that our listeners might follow? Well, so when it comes to books, let me plug in my book here, uh, which is an easy way. So my podcasts uh, are free and they're available both on YouTube and on iTunes as audio and as video options. And anyone can go watch them and listen to them for free. But I also collected uh, sort of an edited version in a book format, which became bestseller in both Canada and the U.S. about a year ago. And it's called Conversations with the Future, 21 Visions for the 21st Century, which basically has... 20 of my best, uh, arguably, uh, interviews, or at least the most popular ones that cover a whole wide range of issues. So now, strongly going... recommended that. That one's on my phone. <laughs> so I was just reading it a bit on the airplane uh, mm-hmm. when I was traveling last week. So there is a Kindle version. You can put it on your phone. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, you can get it both in paper or in uh, digital format. Now, uh, for other people, I would say I'm a huge fan of uh, Cory Doctorow's, um, both for his science fiction, which is very enlightened, and but also for his activism. So, and and you know, Cory says science fiction is is terrible at predicting the future, but it's all about the presence, the present. Right. It's a mirror or a reflection of the present. So, given what's going on right now, both in the world and in the United States, in particularly. I would recommend people check out two of his books. Uh, one is called uh, Little Brother, and the other one is called, his latest one is called Homeland. Um, so th- those are sort of kind of science fictions, but, but also very illuminating in what's going on right now. And also uh, take the position that we can make a difference uh, in the world by, by being proactive and taking a position rather than staying as mere observers and staying on the sidelines. Right. Uh, Speaking of uh, taking a position and its uh, political implications, where are you located? You said you went to school in Canada. Yeah, I'm located in Toronto, Canada. Oh, cool. So how do you uh, Canadians look at uh, global and American politics? Well, to be honest... uh Canadians got quite quite insulted when uh, uh, 
the the American president called Canada a uh, danger to the national security of the United States. Uh, because quite honestly, we fought together in World War One. We fought together in World War Two. We put troops on the grounds in on the ground in Afghanistan. Um, we've been Korea America's greatest trading partner for uh, 200 years, probably since yeah. the get go. Um, we've been the greatest ally. We speak the same language. We're almost the same economy. Uh, we're very close. Like in, I mean, we're like if there's anything like brothers or very close cousins in terms of nations, it's got to be Canada and the U.S. So someone telling us that we are a national security threat to the United States <laughs> was not very popular here right. in Canada. Right. So what? And um, actually, yesterday yeah. was, by the way, um, uh, Canada Day. First of July is is Canada Day, and uh, the Canadian government announced retaliatory retaliatory uh, tariffs. tariffs. Yeah. On, on a number of uh, U.S. Uh, imports um, because, as our prime minister said, we are very nice, but we're not going to be pushed around and insulted, right. and uh, we have the right to defend ourselves, too. Uh, I'm wondering, are there um, guests you would like to get on your podcast that you haven't managed yet? Well, Elon Musk has to be the top of the list on that one. And he's, uh, tell us about him. <laughs> well, everyone knows about Elon Musk, right? right. He's obviously a very busy guy. And right. now Since the, he's been sleeping under his desk for the past month. <laughs> right. He's been sleeping in the factory, so with all the problems and maybe even sabotage uh, on the production line of the Model 3. Uh, but I've been trying to get him for maybe three, maybe four years, but so far... You know, I haven't been lucky enough to do so, but, you know, I'm optimistic and I never give up. I've had people who I have chased for five years or something before I was able to get them on my show. So eventually I'll get him. Great. So, um, listen, Nick, what else would you like to tell our listeners and then maybe we'll wrap up? Well, you know, if you look around the world Humanity is facing a number of uh, grand challenges. Uh, anything stemming, uh, anything like, for example, climate change, to let's say environmental destruction, species extinction, uh, toxic or even plastic pollution, and so on and so on. But if you look actually deeper, those problems are not different. They're, those are all exactly one and the same problem, namely humanity's technological prowess exceeding our own wisdom to use our technology. And so what I want to say to your audience is that, number one, is technology is not enough. We can get all the technology right in the world, but if we screw up our politics, for example, if we get our politics wrong, we can end up uh, in a dystopia or we can destroy ourselves or we can even destroy all life on our planet. So technology is not enough. So uh, we should think not about technology, which is the how, but we should think moreover about the what and the why. And the what and the why are not technological or engineering uh, questions and issues. They're ethical, they're moral, and they're political issues and questions. And that's where our focus should be. So I talk to a lot of engineers and I've interviewed a lot of entrepreneurs um, and very successful people. For example, I talked to the founder of Skype, uh, one of the founders of Skype, Jan Tallinn, and uh, he was telling me, well, technology is this amazing engine that basically is the most important thing on the, on the rocket. And then my response was, yeah, but if you point the rocket towards your neighbor afterwards, the more powerful the engine is, the more damage you're going to do, and maybe you're going to even destroy yourself. So it's not only the engine that matters, but what matters is which way you're driving or you're going and what do you want to do there specifically. And those are the questions we should focus on rather than keep on obsessing about technology. I think that's terrific. And I uh, would add to that description vision <clears throat> that what, you know, assuming we can probably do a lot of what we set out to do, what is it we want to do? What's our vision of a better future. 
Absolutely. And so, for example, in my book, I give people 21 visions of the future. I give 20 of my audience, uh, of my interviewees, and I throw in one from me just, uh, you know, <laughs> to add something. And then I encourage and, in, uh, and advise uh, the reader to actually choose and create uh, to choose and envision their own best possible future and then to not waste any more time but to to start actually working on creating it working on making it happen because that's the only way we can make our planet a, a better place i think rather right. than having spectators who binge on netflix and things like that yeah okay listen i want to thank uh, nikolai danilov aka socrates and go to Singularity, what is it again, your website? You can, the website is just singularity.info, and the podcast is singularity.fm. Great. So thank you very much, and uh, I look forward to uh, binging on some more of your interviews. <laughs> thank you very much, John. All the best. It's been a great conversation. Thanks. Okay, so we have a few more minutes, and I just thought I'd... Uh, uh, bring our listeners up to date on some stuff that's on my uh, smartphone. So uh, Nick recommended Conversations with the Future. And interesting he should mention that because <clears throat> I was on an airplane just a couple of days ago. And so, what was it? Delta <laughs> gives me this great TV screen. Uh, on the seat back in front of me, but United didn't. So I pulled out my phone and I said, "Well, what? You know, they, I don't. I can't get their their uh, Wi-Fi to work." So <clears throat> I said, "Well, what do I have on here?" You know, I got tired of listening to my audio books, of which I have maybe a hundred or so. But there, I so I went to my Kindle books. And, like, I have the complete works of Gatto. It's $3 or something like that. So this is great stuff on Kindle. And uh, and I was looking around. I said, oh, my God, here's, uh, here's Nicola's uh, Conversations with the Future. And so I was reading that. But I'm also in the middle of listening to The Order of Time by Carlo Ravelli. Narrated by, would you believe it, Benedict Cumberbatch, who plays one of the Sherlock Holmes on TVs this day. He does a, is a great British show in which <clears throat> he and Watson are in contemporary London. So he's a detective, Watson's a doctor, and they're in London today. And their cases sort of parallel um, the, the ones in the book. But he, he there's a lot of internet stuff, and you know he uses his smartphone, and he's got this great coat, and just to show what's going on in our world. He's got this a, long, a great coat or a long coat that flares out at the bottom, has a big collar standing up. So I was wondering, and sure enough, I go to Amazon, I put in Sherlock Holmes coat, <laughs> and there it is. Somebody's selling it. I think about uh, I think about when I was about 1962. Uh, I did my sophomore summer in Europe thing <clears throat> with my buddies on motorcycles, and so uh, step one is I lived on Long Island. I took the train into York, went to a pawn shop to get the Marlon Brando. Motorcycle jacket, <laughs> the one that Marlon Brando wears in Wild One, which is the classic motorcycle jacket. And just to show you, that was the only place I could find that in a you know in a pawn shop in New York. And here we are. Just uh, two years ago, I was at a General Electric conference in San Francisco on their digital emerging digital technology. And this, this woman comes uh, on the stage. She had 3,000 people are there, and it's their main annual conference. And this woman comes on the stage, and she's the assistant to the CEO, and she's wearing that motorcycle jacket. 
<laughs> I mean, this, this, the world changes. Anyway, so uh, Benedict Cumberbatch does the narration. And this is a book about theoretical physics. I'd mentioned earlier his book, Reality is Not What It Seems, and um, which focuses in on loop quantum gravity. But here he's talking about, if he uses time as the issue, and of course time is not what we think it is. And um, so, you know, what is time, what is space, and where do, where do we stand in quantum theory today? So I'm in the middle of that. Uh, world without mind, the existential threat of, let's see, of big tech. Let me turn that sound off. And uh, <clears throat> that's a book about, it's, I, I'm, I'm thinking of writing an Amazon, a review on Amazon of this book. Uh, it's very disjointed. It's about a journalist who had, by a journalist, who had run the new, the editor, he was the editor of the New Republic and one was bought by, I think, one of the PayPal um, uh, mafia. They're called people who made a lot of money when they sold PayPal. And how they had a falling out and how the internet is ruining journalism, which is certainly, you know, uh, changing it. And it, yes, there's a lot of stuff that's gone bad and hopefully it'll evolve to something better. But the book is very disjointed. He talks about the how Amazon as a bully, uh, Google as controlling how we perceive things. And everything he says is true, <clears throat> but the book really covers too many different topics and too editorially. It's just, just a lot of it is his opinions as opposed to, um, you know, real investigative journalism. So there are other books on these kinds of topics and exactly what is Google and how does it work? I mean, does, we all want to know. So anyway, but uh, I recommend that just for an overview of what's going on. Um, uh, I guess I'm a very light, a lot of quantum theory here. What is real? The unfinished quest for um, quantum physics. And that's an interesting book. It presents the Copenhagen interpretation of, let me just get that to stop talking. Hang on. Hang on. So anyway, it, um, it presents the Copenhagen interpretation of quantum theory. And it says, you know, there are other interpretations like um, Hugh Everett's parallel universes when the electron can go through or photon can go through either slit, it goes through both. And the world splits into two universes, one in which it went in through one slit and the other in which it went through the other slit. Well, in that interpretation, there are really, I don't know if it's right to say infinite since we're talking science here, but there's a lot of universes, like almost infinite, because every atomic event has numerous statistically possible outcomes and in Everett's interpretation, they all happen. So he presents these different interpretations, John Bell, Hugh Everett, uh, David Bohm, and how they were crushed uh, by the establishment. So it's a good sociological study of science. Oh, I got James Joyce's Portrait of the Artist as a Young Man. I haven't read that since school, so I figured I'd try that again. And I mentioned before a book I sort of recommend, Sharp, by Michelle Dean, and it's about a group, it's about women intellectuals, starting with Dorothy Parker and coming up to figures like Susan Sontag, and gives sort of um, uh, biographical and intellectual sketches of each of them, uh, not really with a reason of why they're all here in this book, but what the hell. Um, and then <clears throat> uh, I mentioned before I love books that give detailed inside stories, you know, where the journalist speaks to lots of uh, insiders and pieces together what really happened. So this book is called Bad Blood, and it's about uh, a company called 
something or other. It's not thermos. <laughs> it's something like that. Anyway, this company you might have read about that with a pinprick of blood could do all your blood tests. You don't have to go to the uh, doctor and get three vials taken out of your vein. And they could never get it to work, but they sort of covered up the fact that it wasn't working. And so it became a big scandal. So I just, you know, I'm delighted with stories like that. I think I'm going to listen again to Walter Isaacson's Leonardo da Vinci. <clears throat> um, I did a book on creativity called Visionary Creativity, How New Worlds Are Born, which is why this show is called Visionaries. Anyway, um, the so I read, you know, a lot of the books on creativity and doing mine, and I really disagree with these books that come at creativity through psychology, um, you know, and they talk about incubation and, I don't know, whatever, whatever, or through neurophysiology, and they talk about parts of the brain with big Latin names, or sociology, and they insist that creativity takes place in groups because that's the political in thing right now. Uh, I prefer books that approach creativity through biography. Let's read a really good creative biography of um, Vincent van Gogh. You know, I haven't finished it, but I've been reading this incredible biography of Picasso by, um, of all people. I'm listening. I was about listening to it. So I'm about five hours into it, and I wrote, oh, my God, this book is by Arianna Huffington. Before she became Arianna Huffington, she wrote this biography of Picasso. And <clears throat> I got the uh, very comprehensive picture book of his work from... Um, uh, from uh, a MoMA exhibit a while back. And so just about every piece she mentions is in that book. So I can, when she's talking about works of art, you know, I'm familiar with a lot of them. But the ones I'm not, I just look it up in my monster telephone book size paperback of that show. Anyway, so a book like, like Huffington's Picasso, a biography of um, Van Gogh, uh, Walter Isaacson's biography of Leonardo, Leonardo da Vinci. Um, so strongly recommend that. I'm going to listen to it again. And it ties biography to detailed descriptions of his art. It could have had a little more about what would the other artists were up to at the same time. He has a little bit about Bramante because they were friends, a little bit about Michelangelo because they were rivals, but there could have been more of that. And uh, Isaacson's a great biographer. I read his Einstein. And just to show you what a wimp I am, I'm still so upset about Steve Jobs' death that I can't read Isaacson's biography of Steve Jobs yet. I have to wait a little longer before I can do that. Um, so those are some of the books that I've been, uh, that I've been reading and or listening to. And I sort of uh, recommend them. And so let's wind up. And this has been uh, John LaBelle. You're listening to Visionaries. Find us here every Monday, 10 a.m. on PRN.FM. Be sure to download our app for your smartphone. And we'll see you next week. <laughs> <laughs>